All right, so here's what we're going to do today. It's going to be a blast. I mean, I'm going to blast information at you. <laughs> um, we are going to uh, get ourselves ready for the, the season, the next autumn season, where we're going to look at this autumn, the spectacular way that God met with and revealed himself to his people at Mount Sinai. I'm calling it Moses Part 2, but we're really looking at the time when, when God's people are at Mount Sinai. And yes, yes, there are going to be pictures, and yes, there is going to be archaeology. Maybe I'll even make up an excuse to draw something. Apparently, that's what I do now. And so we're, we'll have all of that in this, in this study. But today, we're going to just remember what we talked about, the first 16 chapters of the book of Exodus, and, and get ready to dive forward in our study. If you were not here uh, it last autumn, no problem. That's what today is about. Today is about just catching everybody up. I know that everybody who is here remembers everything I said, and so I'm not worried about them. However, it's going to be a bit fast, and there's going to be a lot of information that, that's coming out. At any point, all of the information I'm sharing today, I spoke a lot more about during this series. So if there's something like, oh, that bit, I want to know more about that, you can just go onto YouTube, you can go onto uh, the website and go back to the Moses series part one, and you can just kind of go back and listen to that whole message where you're going to get a lot more background and, and aspects to everything that I am talking about today. One of the major um, premises of our study last year and this year going forward is, is one of the things we discovered was that if the Exodus event took place as the Bible described in one of the most well archaeologically researched and preserved nations on the planet, then we would expect to see in the sand evidences proof of this extraordinary and a nation-impacting event actually taking place. We would expect there to be writings about it. We would expect there to be um, evidence that this really did take place as the Bible describes. So uh, luckily, no, obviously, because the Bible is true, um, this is exactly what we do see in the sands of Egypt. So I'm going to be bringing a lot of that back just to remind us of, of where we are at when it comes to the truthfulness of the Bible. Now, again, this is going to be fast, so strap on your brains and get ready for a walkthrough of the first 16 chapters of the book of Exodus, chapter 1. It was bad. Started off with the God's people in slavery, and the Pharaoh of Egypt commands the killing of the Hebrew baby boys. Now, we know who that Pharaoh was. Um, we, we know that his name was Pengenu. Pengenu. And how do we know this? Well, because when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided by his four generals. Uh, the ones that went to Egypt, the Ptolemies, they commissioned many different scholars to record different aspects of the, the history of Egypt, this, this nation that they had inherited. One of those was a guy named Artapanus. And he, in the great library of Alexandria, with all the, the documents throughout, you know, just at his disposal, his job was to record why there's Jews in Egypt and what's, the, what's their history. So he's doing this in the 300s BC. And so he writes down from the Egyptian perspective what's going on here. And he writes that, that um, Moses' step-grandfather was named was Pengenu. And he was the pharaoh of the north half of Egypt. It was his daughter 
writes Artapanis, Princess Maris, Princess Maris, who drew the baby Moses out of the Nile and adopted him. Josephus also writes about this as well. We read that in Exodus, uh, Moses' mother places, in chapter 2, a little baby Moses in the Nile River. And that's where the princess, when she was, when she was uh, reclining or when she was out at the bathing area, where she found him in the reeds. That would be at, at this part of the Nile. The, the palace is reconstructed, but it's, it's reconstructed at the actual place where the palace was in, in Avaris there, or what we call Ramses. And so uh, you can see the reeds there where the basket would have pulled up, uh, pulled up, you know, just kind of by the hand of God, uh, pulled up there. And where Princess Maris would, would, would see, hey, that's one of the Hebrew babies, and pull the basket out. Now, even though Princess Maris knew exactly what this was, she even says it in the Bible, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she decided to adopt this baby as her own, and she may have been the only human being in Egypt with the, uh, with the ability to directly defy the Pharaoh's command to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. She, she is the princess. She's the daughter of Pharaoh. You know, daughters, right? I mean, they're, they're great. But she defies the Pharaoh's command, and she decides to adopt this Hebrew baby boy. We learn from Artapanis that the, the, <coughs> the country was divided by, into two parts. The southern part was much more powerful at this time, and it was being led by a pharaoh uh, named Canafere. Now, this is Canafere. There's lots of statues of Canafere. This is one from the Louvre. But it was Canafere who marries Pengenu's daughter, Princess Maris. And when they get married and Pengenu dies, then, then Canafere becomes the pharaoh of a reunited Egypt. And he also becomes Moses' step-grandfather. See, the thing is that Princess Maris had adopted baby Moses uh, before she was married. And so, uh, in fact, Moses is about 10 years old before Canafere marries Princess Merit, Maris. And then at that point, Moses becomes the oldest, uh, albeit adopted, uh, son of Canafere, the, the pharaoh of Egypt. So Moses grows up. And he becomes quite a, a big deal in Egypt. According to this stele from the Wadi Hamamat, it seems that Moses becomes the most favorite and favored of all the princes of Egypt. The mightiest of them all, the oldest of them all. In fact, he becomes the hero of the nation. And we get this from this, this stele. We get this from um, a stele down in the Temple of Karnak, which is um, a, a huge palace complex down by modern-day Luxor. Uh, we get this from Artapanis. He's writing about this as well. And we discover when Moses is in his mid-20s, a great invasion takes place from the south, from the Cushites, from the Ethiopians. They're, they're called Cushites. And they come and they start attacking Egypt from the south. And the, the invasion was extremely successful. And, and they, they invaded all the way up to including uh, Memphis, which is, which is really far up into Egypt. Josephus writes about this invasion and how successful the Cushites were. And he, he, he writes this. He says, they, the Ethiopians, the Cushites, proceeded as far as Memphis and the sea itself, while not one of the cities was able to oppose them. He, Moses, came upon the Ethiopians before they expected him, and joining battle with them, he beat them 
and deprived them of the hopes they had of success against the Egyptians. And he went on in overthrowing their cities and indeed made a great slaughter of these Ethiopians or Cushites. It was the army commander, uh, Prince Moses, who pushed back the invaders uh, back to their homeland before laying siege to the capital city of the Cushites. And Artapanus tells us that this campaign lasted 10 years, and he says that eventually peace was arranged by the marriage of the Cushite king's daughter, Princess Tharbis, to Prince Moses. Now, the Bible does write about Moses having a Cushite wife. His sister was not happy about that. You can read about that story in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. So that's, there's that. Now, Moses is a big deal. He's a hero at this point. Very big deal. And it seems like his father got a little insecure and started looking for a way to get rid of the mighty Prince Moses. And so he starts turning, and then one day Moses gives him the excuse that he's needed, he's been looking for. And Moses murdered an Egyptian, Exodus chapter 2. It's just the excuse he needs, and Moses has to flee for his life, and Kenneferi doesn't have to deal with him anymore. Forty years go by. Forty years go by, some stuff happens, he gets, he gets married, and he's, he's part of this family in, in Midian. When all of a sudden, Moses is out in the Midian wilderness, in Midian, and he sees this strange sight. He sees a bush that is burning. That's not burning, though. But it's burning, but not burning, but burning, but not burning. And he's like, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight. So he goes over to this bush, and he meets God. He has this encounter with God. Now, I want to remind you that, that this burning bush is at Mount Sinai. Sometimes we forget that the burning bush is also the same place as the burning mountain that we're going to be looking more about. But they're at the same location. God meets him here at Mount Sinai, and it's in Midian. Just also to be clear, we talked about this previously, Mount Sinai has to be in Midian. It has to be in the green box area on the map here, on the Google Earth map area. It cannot be where that red X is. It cannot be on the Sinai Peninsula. Um, everywhere the Bible describes um, where Mount Sinai is, it's in that green box area, whether uh, Paul refers to it as Arabia or others, others refer to it as in the land of Midian. It has to be in that green box area based on every description of where it is in the Bible. So, God meets Moses there in Midian at Mount Sinai. And he sends him back to rescue his people, God's people, from slavery in Egypt. And that's in chapters 3 and 4 in the book of Exodus. So he returns, as we read in chapter 4, verse 19, because all the people who wanted to kill Moses were dead. And so Egypt has new leadership at the time. Princess Maris has passed away. Kenneferi has died. He's been buried in the temple of Karnak down in Luxor. And... Uh, now a new pharaoh is, is in charge, and we know his name. His name is Deutemose. Deutemose, and he is now in charge. How do we know that Deutemose is the pharaoh of the Exodus? Well, because we can see it on the royal canon of Turin here. This is the royal canon. It's the most reliable list of kings of Egypt that, that, we, that we have. Now, as you can see, it's not in great shape. Uh, there's some bits missing. But what we can tell is even if some names are missing that there has been about 21 
very short reigning pharaohs, a few months here, a few months there, between Kenefere and Dudamose. Now, Dudamose's name isn't fully on the list. It's the, the bottom one down here. Um, but you can see the, the last four letters, M-O-S-E, right? You got Mose. And we, there's only one pharaoh in the history of Egypt that has that name. That, that name ends with M-O-S-E. And it's, it's Dudamose. So, so that, that's him on the king's list there. But still, how do we know that it's him? Well, because during Deuteronomy's reign, that is the moment where Egypt suddenly breaks. It instantly breaks. In Deuteronomy's reign, we see the only collapse of Egypt's power over a thousand-year time span. Right in his reign. And ultimately, that collapse opens the doors for the Hyksos to, to invade, and, and they take over Egypt very easily. Um, this is written about by one of the Egyptian historians, a, a priest, an Egyptian priest named Manetho. And Manetho, he writes about what happened, and he says, Tutameos, now that's his, how he's referred to in Greek, because the Ptolemies are Greek, and so he has this Greek name for him, but his, his uh, Egyptian name is Dudamose. It says, in his reign... For what cause I know not, God smote us. God smote us, the Egyptians. This is written by an Egyptian. And then it goes on, and unexpectedly from the regions of the east, invaders of obscure race marched in confidence of victory over land. By main force they easily seized without striking a blow. And having overpowered the rulers of the land, they burned our cities ruthlessly, raised to the ground the temples of the gods, and treated all the natives with cruel, a cruel hostility, massacring some and leading into slavery the wives and children of others. Now, it does not say the gods smote us. It said God. One God. God smote us. One God smote Egypt. And this smiting was so devastating, it so wrecked Egypt that when, when a, a force came to invade, they easily took over. No one was able to, there was nothing left in Egypt to fight uh, back the, the invading armies. That's how de decimated Egypt was by this God who smote them during the reign of Dedemose. Well, Moses returns to Midian, from Midian, from Midian in chapter 5 of the book of Exodus. And we see this great showdown now between Yahweh and Moses versus Pharaoh, Didymose, and the Magi, or the, the wise men, the, 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 yeah, the Magi of Egypt, magicians of Egypt. Now here's a chart of the plagues that, that God started when it comes to him smiting. Uh, what we have in the Bible here is an eyewitness account by Moses himself writing the story of God's decimation of, of Egypt via these plagues, again, from the Hebrew perspective. As we saw in our study, we also have an eyewitness account that's been preserved through the ages from an Egyptian. An Egyptian magi, an Egyptian magician, actually a magician, a, a sage, one of the wise men, one of the sages of, of Egypt... And his name was Epuer. Here's a picture of his account called The Admonitions of an Egyptian Sage. You can find this in the Netherlands in the Leiden Museum. But it's, this is Epuer telling the same moment of the devastation of Egypt by this God who smote the Egyptians from, again, the wise men's perspective. 
He's writing in the first person as an eyewitness of this account. And he's, and he's one of those people that you read about in the Bible who is a wise man who is tr- challenging Pharaoh eventually. You've got to let these people go because look at Egypt's being ruined. And he writes in this account about he's trying to convince Pharaoh to let them go because, yeah, and we see that again in the Bible, this, this same account. So this guy doesn't know Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but he's experiencing the, the devastation as an Egyptian and, and in leadership. The kinds of things that he writes in this, here's a few of them. Um, like the first plague, the river turns to blood. The river is blood, he writes. As you drink of it, you lose your humanity and thirst for water. He writes about the destruction of the crops and several plagues destroy the crops. He says, gone is the grain of abundance. Food supplies are running short. The nobles hunger and suffer. Upper Egypt has become a wasteland. That's very biblical. Upper Egypt is the south. Lower Egypt is where God's people live. He actually doesn't say Egypt is a wasteland. He says upper Egypt. God in the Bible is very clear that he is distinguishing in some of these plagues between where God's people live and the south region. A pure does that as well. Upper Egypt has become a wasteland. Grain is lacking on every side. The storehouse is bare. Women say, oh, that we had something to eat. You know, the men, they're cool. But um, the women w- wish that there was food. Uh, and uh, About the plague of darkness there, uh, a pure says, those who had shelter, or basically those who had survived all the atrocities that were happening in their, in their nation, uh, are now in the dark of the storm. The whole area of the delta cannot be seen. Again, there's, there's a lot of other pieces. Um, the looting of Egypt, when the, you know, in the Bible when God's people ask their neighbors for gold and, and precious things, Epure writes about it. He says, the slave, which is the Hebrews, takes what he finds. What belongs to the palace has been stripped. Gold, lapis lazuli, silver, and turquoise are strung on the necks of female slaves. See how the poor of the land have become rich while the man... Uh, whilst the man of property is a pauper. I mean, there, there's a lot more. You can go back and, and see more of this in the message sharing last autumn. But this decimation of Egypt really did happen. Just as the Bible describes, uh, leading to all of God's people, probably a couple million at this point, walking out of Egypt in one night as the Bible describes. There's a lot of evidence in the sand pointing to that actually happening we looked at the city of Avaris and the city of Python and, and the slave city Cahoon. And, and we, we identified there's 20 slave cities that they already know um, that were Egyptian slave cities that were basically abandoned in one moment. Um, this, is the, this is a reconstruction of the slave city of Cahoon. And according to all archaeology, completely abandoned overnight in one moment. They, like all the slaves just got up and walked out. And you see this in the, in the other areas as well. Professor A.R. David in his book, The Pyramid Builders of Ancient Egypt, he writes about how Cahoon seems to have been abandoned overnight, and it couldn't have been because of a plague or relocation to another work site because there were no buried bodies, and they left their work equipment behind. They just left. They took all of their clothes and left most everything else and walked out together. That's what the sand says. That's what the archaeology says. The Bible says the same thing. They got up and they walked out together. So we talked a lot about this in our study in the autumn and how what we read in the Bible, things, events that happening, they really did happen as the Bible describes. 
The Egyptian historians write about it. The, the evidence in the sand supports exactly what the Bible says happened. This is one of those greatest moments in history where God shows his power to both judge and save at the exact same moment. It's a very amazing moment. Where did God's people go? They went to the shore of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh, due to Moses, sent an army after them to bring them back. But God did an incredible miracle and he parted the Red Sea. He sent a mighty east wind. He parted the Red Sea so that God's people could walk through on dry ground in chapters 12, 13, and 14. When the Egyptians tried this, they were drowned. Where did this take place? We talked about how there was only two locations in all of the Red Sea that match a possible place where this could have taken place. These, uh, this is just snapshots from Google Earth with um, special drawings by one of the most famous artists, <laughs> Picasso, okay. Uh, so there's a, red, there's a red line, there's a red option and a blue option, right? Red pill, blue pill. And the top one is, the, the red one is called Nueva Beach, uh, the Nueva Beach crossing. And you can see in the middle there, there's a huge sand uh, beach there where a couple million could camp whilst they would not be able to escape if the Egyptians were coming after them. Remember, God is very specific. They are to go to a very specific location. He is directing them, like, you must be here, or camped across from here. And he's very precise. He, he's setting up a miracle, right? And so they go to that, potentially go to that beach, Nueva Beach, and then God would have parted the Red Sea, and it's, it's possible that they could have crossed there. Some of the underwater topography, and the, most of the underwater topography has like cliffs and you just couldn't pass there underneath the water. This one goes down gently enough and up. It's 16 kilometers across. It goes down 2,870 feet down and then 2,000. 870 feet up. Uh, it's over a half mile down and up, 16 kilometers. It's doable in this location. A lot of people um, investigate that as a potential crossing site. That one is not my favorite, but that is, that's one of them. The other one is the blue crossing site. It's called the Tyrian, the Tyrian Strait Crossing. And I think you can see it clearly on, on the map over here. You've got the campsite where, uh, where God's people would have been. They could not escape uh, if the Egyptians were coming from behind them. And I, maybe you can see in the picture that in the sea there, there is, uh, this is Google Earth, an underwater land bridge. Uh, you can probably see it going across to that island there at that time. In, in that back in then, the island would have been connected to the mainland there. It's only five kilometers across, not 16. And the, the, the normal depth doesn't go really below 150 feet deep. Just, just a shallow uh, a, a shallow um, area there. It's, it's just like, a, like the, the depth of the Red Sea just kind of comes up to this land bridge. Now it's been dredged a bit now for shipping and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you could, you could just uh, go down 150 feet. Very easy. Much closer. Much shallower. Much shallower. 150 feet. Much easier than going down 2,870 feet and back. So um, here's a picture, by the way, of people standing on the reef out there uh, at low tide. I mean, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty remarkable that that's low tide. You, you, if you're standing on the shore, uh, you're not able to see that there's an underwater land pathway there. Um, if you don't have an airplane or a satellite where you can look down, you just don't know that it's there. But, you know, low tide, a mighty east wind could have easily 
made, made this, this pathway available uh, for the people to walk through on dry ground. When the Egyptians tried it, they couldn't make it. Uh, I mentioned that it's possible the Bible talks about this underwater pathway that wasn't known. And in Psalm 77, verse 19, we would read, your, the, the psalmist writes, Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. Uh, that's how it writes about the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, um, could it be either of the locations? Yeah, totally. God can do anything. Uh, that, that's just my favorite. It doesn't really matter unless it's true, and so I don't, I don't know if it's true. So um, we're not voting. Uh, what, where it happened, it happened, but that's, uh, that's the two most likely places. And um, so they cross the Red Sea. And then after that, what do they do in chapter 15? They worship. They celebrate. Three days later, they grumble. And then God gives them manna to eat in chapter 16, and he starts providing bread for, from heaven for them as they continue on their journey. That's kind of where we, what we covered in the first 16 chapters. Now again, that was probably a massive blast. Uh, if you were here, you're like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. I mean, hopefully. Um, for those of you who are new and you're like, oh, that's just overwhelming. Good news, you, you can go onto YouTube <laughs> And, and if you want to know more about any of that bit and a lot more of the Bible behind those bits, you can go back and watch that on the YouTube. In fact, that's going to be the challenge for today. I'll just put the challenge up right now, or my daughter Emma will. Uh, over the next two weeks, go to the website or YouTube and watch or rewrite, watch the Moses Part 1 messages. Again, I don't think you'll regret it. I, I pulled up my notes, and I was like, oh, wow. Okay, I, I, I know they're my notes. But still, uh, <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, like the messages there, I mean, they were speaking to me, you know, here at, at this time later, and just kind of being reminded of, of, of some of the spiritual messages of that, of that season. Um, I encourage you to do that. But one of the things that I, I want also for you today is, um, we're, again, in two weeks we're going to pick up on this study at Mount Sinai. But I want to I make sure that I'm bombarding a, a particular lie in our generation. And if you have this lie in your heart, I, I want to just, just cr see it crushed and, 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 and gone from your life. There's this lie that says, I can't trust the Bible. I can't trust the details in the Bible. I can't trust the historicity. It is a word. I can't trust the historicity of 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 what the Bible says happened. I can't trust that it actually happened. It's too miraculous. It, it Certainly it could not have happened. I want to crush that lie because I want you to know that both the details of the Bible are true and accurate and historically uh, obvious, uh, as we can attest to archaeologically, but I, I also want you to know that the message of the Bible is true and accurate. And both of them are very important for me to keep uh, reminding of you. The, the message of the Bible is, is amazing. The message of the Bible is that God sees you, and that's good. He sees you. He's aware of the pain and the disappointments and the challenges in your, in your life, the threats that you might be facing. He sees you. He cares about you very much. In fact, God actually loves you. He loves you right now in this moment. 
And the message of the Bible says that Jesus, that God sent his son Jesus to a very unworthy people. If you feel unworthy, perfect. That's exactly whom God sent Jesus to. And he comes to an unworthy people. He, Jesus allows himself to be killed in obedience to God the Father on a Roman cross. But three days later, God really did rise Jesus from the dead. And as a result, the message of the Bible is that now anyone who believes in Jesus, anyone, any background, any sexuality, any baggage, any unworthiness, anyone can come to Jesus, believe in him, dedicate their life to follow him, and be forgiven of everything and saved. You can be adopted into God's family. Anybody can be adopted into God's family and not, be for, not just be forgiven of everything, but also get to enjoy eternity with God in his future paradise forever. This paradise that he made just for his own family. But the message of the Bible is, again, whatever your story, you are enthusiastically invited to believe in Jesus and, and be saved, to give your life to follow him and be forgiven. The Bible is true, both in fact and in message. You can anchor your life. You don't need to be afraid that it's not true. Whatever doubts you might carry about, am I really, is it really safe to trust Jesus with my life? Is it really safe to believe in Jesus? Is it really safe to believe that what the Bible is t telling me actually happened and is true? And I'm saying yes. And one of the big messages of this church is you can trust the, the details and the message in the Bible. I want to pray for you. If, if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want to help you with that. And if, you, if you're struggling with, with really anchoring and being solid in trusting the Bible and its message about your salvation, I want to I pray for that as well. In fact, why don't you stand with me? For some of you, it's a new beginning day. It's a new start, a new season, a new start. And maybe you have uh, followed Jesus and believed in Jesus in the past, but you kind of stopped doing that for, for a while here. And it's time for you to kind of recommit to following Jesus and running after Jesus. And some of you, maybe for the first time, you, you need to just give your life, say, Jesus, okay, from now on, I am going to follow you. I'm going to give my life to you. If that's you, I'm going to pray, and, and, and I encourage you to pray something like this. Like, God, here I am. I now dedicate or rededicate, recommit or commit my life to following you, Jesus, from here into forever. Jesus, I ask you for your grace and your forgiveness. Your Bible says that you grant it to those who give their life to you. And I'm going to believe today that that is true for me because I'm going to believe your Bible. Forgive me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And lead me into the everlasting way, the good way. Father, I ask for you to pour out faith and certainty 
over all who are listening. Let, let the lies of the enemy be, uh, be removed, evaporated, crushed, um, gone in the name of Jesus. The lies that would bring doubt to whether we can trust this salvation or doubt to whether we can trust your word. We can and we declare we choose to trust your word with all of our heart, soul, and innermost being. We choose to trust it true and base our life on it. God, I just pray that, that, uh, that you would just, uh, again, abolish unbelief in our midst and that you would uh, bring solidity and confidence and faith into our joy and delight that we have your word and it's completely reliable. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.